That being said, let's turn our attention to the word today. I want to kind of just pick up a little bit where we've left off these last several weeks talking about rebuilding. Last week, as we looked at the stories of this generation of rebuilders that returned to Jerusalem following the exile in Babylon, uh, last week we talked about rebuilding as worship. And I really tried to highlight how the rebuilders addressed this entire century-long rebuilding project as one continuous act of worship. And when we talked about worship last week, it was necessary to kind of remind ourselves that as much as we tend to use the word worship in church circles to refer to music, like the worship is the songs that we sing to or about God, That's not really a very helpful definition for worship, and it's not really a very biblical definition for worship. Worship and music certainly are very tightly related, but it would be wrong to say worship is music or music is worship. Not all worship happens with music, and not all music is is worship, right? Okay, thank you, we're all awake. There we are. Um, and, And so instead of just talking about music, It was helpful a week ago to kind of develop this other definition for worship. I want to remind you of that today because I'm going to kind of pick up right there. Last week we said worship is the intentional act of focusing on and responding to God's presence with awe, humility, and sacrifice. If you weren't here last week and didn't get that in your notes and you want it in your notes, You can go listen to last week's service, or you could just ask me after service. I'm not going to repeat it too much here, but you you could ask me later. Responding to God's presence with awe, humility, and sacrifice. And today, I want to do a deeper dive on that last word. We're going to talk about sacrifice specifically. Today is the sacrifice of rebuilding. Rebuilding requires sacrifice by its very nature. You cannot build and you certainly cannot rebuild without giving something up. In my backyard at home, we have a long fence along the back property line because our our property backs up to a busy street. And and the wood, the cedar fence that that we've had there for years and years and years is in disrepair. It's falling down. It's ugly. It's got gaps in it. It's terrible. And so late last fall, I hired a contractor to come out and for our purposes, we'll say rebuild the fence. The truth is they're taking the old fence out and putting a new fence in. Glory, hallelujah. It's a little bit like Nehemiah. We're going to rebuild the walls around my city, right? Okay, they're putting a new fence in. Um, now, they haven't been able to do it through the, the winter months, but we are getting close to the period of time when, when they're going to be able to do it. In order to rebuild my fence, sacrifices are going to have to be made. Jessica just asked me yesterday, she said, Dad, what happens to the old fence when they come? What, what about all the wood from the old fence? And I said, honey, they're, they're taking that away. They're taking that away. And I'm very excited about that. I think she had her eyes Uh, you know, like maybe I could build a fort with that. Like we could do some fun stuff with that. I think she's a little disappointed, but, but I'm glad that they're taking it away. The point is this, that we wouldn't be able to do it unless I was willing to sacrifice. And I'm more than willing to sacrifice the wood from the old fence. Just get rid of it. Right. We have to sacrifice the timber from the original fence, but maybe of more value to me is we have to, we have to be able and willing, the, the contractor does, to, to sacrifice the wood, the nails, the screws, the supplies. Um, bigger deal to me, 
I had to sacrifice a lot of time to plan and prepare. Three times in the last month, I've been over at the Building and Zoning Commission office in, in DuPage County and waiting to get the permits and the zoning that I need. Oh my goodness, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare, but just to be able to fix the fence that's already in my backyard, right? And that took a lot of time. It took a lot of energy. It took a lot of effort. I had to sacrifice that for the project. Uh, I had to sacrifice a lot of money for this project. They don't just give fences away, it turns out. You know, this is an expensive thing to do. And if we're not willing to make any one of those sacrifices, our fence is not going to get rebuilt. We have to be willing to sacrifice in order to rebuild. And in the same way, when we become rebuilders of spiritual things, we cannot expect to be successful unless we're willing to sacrifice. And so let's consider once again the lives of the six rebuilders that we've been talking about. You can see their picture on the screen here in a moment. Um, we have, you know, left to right here, we have Zerubbabel and Joshua, we have Haggai, Zechariah, we have Ezra, and we have Nehemiah, all called back over the course of about 100 years to Jerusalem, which had lain in ruin. And they're now rebuilding different aspects and different parts of it. The Bible highlights in every part of their stories, the Bible highlights the material things that were given by people so that the city could be rebuilt. Think about it. Back in the day, they couldn't just go to the Home Depot and buy the timber. Everything they used to rebuild, altar, temple, buildings, walls, everything they used had to be donated, had to be given by someone. Somebody had to sacrifice so that the city could be rebuilt. But they also sacrificed less tangible things, their time. In some cases, their reputation. This was a fool's errand, people said. Why would you do such a thing? They sacrificed their credibility. They sacrificed relationships. Consider Nehemiah all the way on the right end of the picture. Nehemiah was living a life of comfort in the palace of the king of Persia. He gave all of that up so that he could go lead a construction team. He sacrificed a life of comfort. Consider Haggai. And we don't know too much. The Bible is silent about Haggai before the rebuilding, but it seems to insinuate that he was elderly at the time he entered the scene. Uh, perhaps he sacrificed a quiet life of retirement. Imagine, you know, Haggai could have just sat at home and, and kind of just relaxed in his golden years, but he decided, no, I'm going to dust off the prophet's cloak one more time and get involved again. Who knows what else these men and the other people with them may have sacrificed. We will never know, truly, the details, the, the many ways in which their lives told the stories of sacrifice, but we can learn from their examples. Where to start? Where to begin? Let's start here. Rebuilding requires a plan for sacrificial giving. It requires a plan for sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving never really happens by accident. And although God certainly does want us to design our lives so that we have the ability to be spontaneous with our generosity, right? To see a need in the moment and, and be able to respond to it. God certainly honors that and wants us to design our lives in such a way that that's possible. But I would argue that the Bible shows that that should be the exception, not the norm. Sacrificial giving requires a plan. And so that kind of spontaneity 
ought not to be the norm. It should be the exception. Sacrifice is something we have to plan for ahead of time. Let me tell you a little bit about Ezra's story here. Ezra returned to Jerusalem um, from Persia, but before he traveled, he recruited other Jews living in Persia to travel with him. Now, this is happening about 75 years after Zerubbabel and Joshua. So by the time Ezra decides to go back to Jerusalem, we already have 75 years worth of Jews that have already returned to Jerusalem. There's already a generation and and a second generation, maybe even the beginning of a third generation living there. Ezra is going to lead a second wave of refugees to return. And so he recruits for that job. And the Bible says that he recruits almost 2,000 men together with their families. We don't have a complete head count, but let's say most of those men were married and many of them would have had children. Let's just say about 5,000 is a good faith estimate of a round number. About 5,000 Jews are going to travel with Ezra from Persia back to Jerusalem and constitute this second wave of refugees. Now here's the point. Before they leave Persia, got that? Before they leave Persia, Ezra tells them to collect offerings for the temple in Jerusalem. You can read the details of that in Ezra chapter 8, but it tells us there that more than 30 tons of precious metal was collected, gold, silver, bronze. That's, in today's language, many, many millions upon millions upon millions of dollars worth of offerings that were collected. Collected some from the families who were making the journey, some almost certainly from other families who weren't going to make the journey, but said, send this along. We'd, we'd like this to go towards the rebuilding in the temple. And some even from the Persian officials, perhaps even including the king. You know, we've already read about how they were, they were actually invested in this. They said, yeah, you guys go. Let us help you. We want to bless you as you go. So they collected all of these offerings. And in Ezra chapter 8, verse 28, Ezra records, I said to them, I said to the, the people that I was going to travel with, you, as well as these articles, are consecrated to the Lord. Ezra's doing a little bit of teaching about how giving works here. He's saying it's not just the gifts. You also are consecrated to the Lord. So guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. This is all happening, remember, before the journey even begins. And so they carry all this stuff with them. 30 tons they carry with them on their journey. They arrive safely in Jerusalem about four months later. And when they get there, they're tired. So they rest for three days. And then check this out, Ezra chapter eight, verse 33. On the fourth day, in the house of our God, we weighed out the silver and the gold and the sacred articles. Everything was accounted for by number and by weight and the entire weight was recorded at that time. Do we have any nerds in the room today who are just loving Ezra? He had records on everything. He had records on everything. So they traveled with everything, they get there, they rest for three days on day four, let's take it out, let's weigh it, let's balance the books, make sure everything that we planned is accounted for, and then check this, the very next verse. Then, the exiles who had returned from captivity sacrificed. Then they sacrificed. And he goes on to describe the worship service that they had. They were ready to sacrifice 
because they planned ahead. They gave at God's house exactly according to the plan that they had made four months prior. They developed and they executed a plan to give sacrificial. So when we give, are we giving just whatever we happen to have on us at the time? Or are we giving like Ezra and his friends gave? Are we giving according to a plan? Do you love that line? Everything was accounted for by number. He knew exactly what they were going to give. And church, frankly, that's why we're doing planting partners the way we're doing it. Uh, HRCC, I have learned over the years, is inherently a generous community of believers. It's just, it's one of our hallmarks. You guys have been overwhelming with your generosity through the years. If we stood here and said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to receive an offering for the church plant, I have no doubt that the, the fruit of that would be overwhelming. It would be a tremendous blessing. That would be good. Many among us look for opportunities to give sacrificially, but planting partners is our way of giving you, giving us, giving all of us an entire year to actually biblically plan to sacrifice. It's a biblical way of making a plan for sacrificial giving so that together we can build something. That's what it takes to rebuild, a plan to sacrifice for the project. When the contractor arrives to build my fence, hopefully in a couple of weeks here, he better have a plan, right? I don't want him to show up and just say, oh, I got some wood in the back of the truck, we'll just start over here and kind of see how it goes. Uh-uh. For the money I'm paying, he better have a plan. He better have a very, very good plan. He better have set aside exactly the right amount of lumber, wood, panels, posts, nails, screws, supplies, all of the things that he's going to need. Otherwise, the rebuilding is never going to be accomplished. He better have a plan and have set aside the right number of workers to get the job done in a day. If they have all the supplies right, but only one guy shows up and he's got a broken leg, the job isn't gonna get done. They have to have planned better than that. When it comes time to pay him, I better have a plan, right? I better have a plan. I can't just show up and say, well, you know, I got some extra here. Let me give you what I've got available at the moment. He's not going to be pleased with that. He's not going to be pleased unless I made a plan to sacrifice for the project to be rebuilt. That's just not how rebuilding gets accomplished by, by, by not planning. Jesus actually told a story very, very much like this when he was trying to describe what it looks like to rebuild your life by following him. In Luke chapter 14, verse 28, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. Jesus said this, Don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating to the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might finish only the foundation before running out of money, and, and then everybody would laugh at you. They would say, oh, there's that guy who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Jesus is saying, even in spiritual matters, I'm going to use the metaphor of rebuilding, and I'm going to say, you better have a plan. You better have a plan of what you're going to give up in order to see it through. 
Rebuilding always involves sacrifice. And you have to have a plan ahead of time if you're going to be successful. And rebuilders by nature, they want to be successful. Right? They want to see the project through to completion. But sometimes they learn the hard way that an unwillingness to sacrifice halts the rebuilding process. If we're not willing to make that sacrifice, it's our unwillingness to sacrifice that can halt the rebuilding process. And we've told this story several times in the last few weeks, but I always manage to tell it a little bit out of order as I highlight different parts of the story. So let me just quickly laid out in order. The story begins when Zerubbabel and Joshua returned. They were the first ones on the scene and they made the altar their priority. They built the altar before they built the temple around it, right? And they did rebuild the altar, but once it was done, they and the workers who were with them never really got around to the temple itself. And so the rebuilding work halted for many years until Haggai and Zechariah showed up. And the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, reminded the people about the need to actually keep working, to see the project through and finish the temple building itself. Now here's the details of how that story happened. When Haggai appears in the story, we don't know if he was already there sitting and waiting or if he happens to have just shown up and taken notice. But when he first speaks up, What he does is he points out the irony that the people have finished their own homes. They've worked on and finished their private homes, but they haven't even started on God's house. Haggai chapter 1 verse 3, Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, and Haggai said, Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in paneled houses? Well, this house remains a ruin. Quick little side note, his word there, panel, the real, the word specifically translated is sealed. Are you living in your sealed houses? Not with an S, sealed with a C, C C-E-I-L. It's where we get the root word for sealing. And it's his way of saying a finished house. Is Is it appropriate for you to be in a ceiling, under a ceiling? What he's really saying is, Is it appropriate, is it okay for you to have put a roof over your own head while ignoring what you came to do for God? And the people are saying, well, we we can't rebuild. We don't don't have the means to do it. And Haggai is saying, you seem to have enough means to work on your own house. The truth is that the rebuilding stopped because you became unwilling to sacrifice your own comfort. That's the only reason the rebuilding stopped in Haggai's view. You were unwilling to sacrifice your own comfort and an unwillingness to sacrifice halts the rebuilding product. project. Excuse me. Where we do ministry in Haiti along the southern coastline, there's really only one paved road where we, where we do our missions trips and it runs right along the coast. I mean, if you get out of the, the truck, you're standing in, in ocean water. You're right on the beach. We go right along the beach. The first time I was in Haiti, there was an area of that road that had gotten washed out by high tide and high waves. And so they were doing some repair work on it. The local Haitian government, which is very, very corrupt, had hired a local work crew to kind of rebuild the seawall there and make sure that uh, it, it wouldn't w- wash out any further. And so every day as we rode this, this, this paved road along the, 
the ocean side there, we could see this work crew rebuilding the seawall. It was a slow process. They didn't have any machines. They were basically just by hand stacking boulders and, and, and cement and whatever else they were using to, to do this, this project. And slowly but surely, each day we could see a little bit of progress being made. Somewhere along the way, that corrupt government decided that they had actually gotten some traction on this project, and so they just stopped paying the crew because they didn't want to sacrifice any more out of their own slush funds, right? So they just stopped paying the crew, and the crew protested and said, we want our money, we want our money, and, and they weren't getting paid. And so one night, it was actually the night before we were scheduled to leave and come back home, that work crew showed up in the middle of the night and they disassembled the seawall. They took down all of the building that they had done over the course of the previous week, and they took those boulders and used them to build a barricade on the highway. <laughs> so they said, you don't wanna pay us? All right, here's what we're gonna do. So that whole, we don't wanna pay you anymore that the government had backfired on them. Now, not only do we not have a seawall, we have a highway that's been completely barricaded. Whatever our rebuilding project might be, we might think like things are humming along smoothly and maybe we're finally starting to see progress. Maybe there's some traction and it can be tempting in that moment to think that we finally got it together and things are ready to take off. Maybe we feel a little bit like that Haitian government. We sacrificed a little and we finally got what we were looking for. But as soon as we stop sacrificing, the project is going to halt. It's gonna to come to an end and maybe it's even gonna backfire because rebuilding runs on sacrifice. Can I remind you of this? I've talked a lot about money today, but this isn't all about money. It's probably not even primarily about money. The rebuilders had to sacrifice a lot of things to see these projects through. We've already mentioned some of them, time, comforts, relationships, careers, whatever. If you're rebuilding in your life, you need to consider how many of those things need to be on a sacrificial altar. For example, do you remember I told you a few weeks ago about when Zerubbabel first returned and told the neighbors that he was gonna oversee the, the rebuilding of an altar to Yahweh, the neighbors offered to help. And they were like, cool, Yahweh, he's like one of our absolute favorite gods. We totally wanna to help you build an altar to Yahweh. And Zerubbabel had to make this decision. He had to decide what to do with that offer. And, he decided, rightfully so, to tell them no. Well, here's the deal with that story. Those neighbors weren't just neighbors. They were distant kin of the Israelites. They were shirt-tail relatives. They were extended family. And they got angry when Zerubbabel told them that they could not be included. I told you a few weeks back about why that was, in fact, the right choice. But the point today is this. Zerubbabel had to be willing to sacrifice peace in those relationships in order to rebuild. There are people in this world who will act like your friend as long as you're not rebuilding something more important. There are jobs that you can have that will pay you more money as long as you're not rebuilding something more important. There are lifestyles you can live that will make you more comfortable as long as you're not trying to rebuild something more important. But God is seeking to empower a generation of rebuilders who are willing to lay things like that aside 
to sacrifice them if necessary in favor of answering the call to rebuild. And among the many important reasons why sacrifice is such a big part of rebuilding, one very, very practical one deserves mention, and it's this. God uses our sacrifices to protect the vulnerable. He uses our sacrifices to protect the vulnerable. God's obsession with protecting vulnerable people is a major theme of Scripture. Did you know that? Huge portions of the Old Testament law are focused on that principle alone, that God wants to protect vulnerable people. And in the New Testament, we read that religion that our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. God is always, always focused on protecting the vulnerable. Now, historically, churches in our tradition have done a pretty good job of applying that principle to certain issues, things like abortion, things like foreign missions work. We, we love to go other places in the world and, and build schools and feed the hungry and, and dig wells. But I think sometimes we've done less well at identifying vulnerabilities in our own society. We've done less well at seeing and understanding the harm done by systemic social and economic issues that have a way of exploiting groups of people. And it seems that the rebuilders in Jerusalem actually have the same blind spots that we do. Nehemiah is the last of the rebuilders to enter the story. He enters Jerusalem and his job is is to build the defensive walls around the city. He finds a city that the, the buildings are, are, are taking shape. They're largely rebuilt, but he's going to come and build the wall that defends the city. But when he arrives, he finds an economic crisis that is built on class warfare. He finds that able-bodied, blue-collar workers who ordinarily would earn their living and provide for their families by, by planting crops and, and raising livestock and doing things like that, those kinds of guys hadn't been able to plant crops and raise livestock. They hadn't been able to invest the time in their own businesses like that because able-bodied, blue-collar men had been busy rebuilding the city. They had been doing all of those things. They were building walls. They were restoring buildings. So they owned fields, but they weren't able to invest in their own fields by planting in order to provide for their families because they were too busy building. So they were forced to borrow money from wealthier Israelites in order to buy grain to feed their own families or in order to have enough money to pay the taxes that they still owed back to, to Persia. They borrowed money, they, they mortgaged their own property, and in some cases they sold their own children into indentured servitude and, and slavery in order to raise enough money to survive and pay off their debts. And Nehemiah finds that the upper class Israelites, the wealthy among them, were all too happy to make those kinds of loans at an aggressive interest rate, because in their view it was just an opportunity. It was the economy at work. It was an opportunity to capitalize and accumulate some wealth. But it was coming at the expense of the working class. 
And Nehemiah has a harsh and pointed reaction. You can read it in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 9. He says, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the, in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? He's like, doesn't our reputation matter to you guys? Doesn't how we treat one another reflect on who we say we are? He says, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let's stop charging interest. In other words, he's saying, we are all in this rebuilding together. And so you need to lend your wealth to the poor without collateral and sacrifice the interest that you otherwise would have made because that is what is required for this rebuilding to succeed. Nehemiah institutes sweeping economic reform. He mandates that all mortgaged or seized property be returned to its original owner immediately and free of cost. He adjusts the prime interest rate to 0.0. He makes the upper class agree to fund the rebuilding efforts and to make money free of charge available to those in need. And he cancels the taxes. Nehemiah was the governor, so there was a a revenue stream that came back to his office. There were taxes that were due to him. He cancels those taxes, and instead he starts supporting his own staff out of his own pocket. Nehemiah sacrifices what rightfully should have been his in order to protect the vulnerable so that the rebuilding can go on. Church, I don't want us to see our sacrifices as a burden. I think a more accurate biblical way of looking at sacrifice is seeing it as part of the fuel that makes God's kingdom move forward. When I fill my, my gas tank, you know, the, the tank in my car with gas, look, I'm like you. I don't enjoy the price I have to pay at the pump. I don't enjoy paying for the gas. But But here's what happens. As I drive throughout town, I don't cling to the gasoline. I don't despise having to sacrifice it because it's the fuel that gets me where I need to go. Nobody gets to where they're going. Nobody pulls up in their car and says, well, I'm awful glad to be here, but I sure do miss all that gasoline I used to have. Nobody despises losing gasoline because it's the sacrifice that gets us where we want to go. And I think we would do well to foster that kind of attitude about the sacrifices that we make as we rebuild. Actually, I think we would do well to learn all kinds of things about sacrificing from these six rebuilders. And that's why I wanted us to hear their stories today. Church, we've closed on this note each of the last several weeks. Rebuilding, 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 right? I've got a fence going up in my backyard. It's great, great object us. But I think the real application here has much more to do with what we sense God is trying to do in our lives. I've had conversations and different, different communiques with different ones of you. Thank you to those of you that, that emailed me this week and just talked about what you felt like God was calling you to rebuild in your own life. I'm praying for you. I'd love to hear more of those stories if if you have them. I'm hearing stories from different ones of you about how God is is rebuilding in your families. 
in relationships. I've heard stories from different ones of you about how God is rebuilding and asking you to rebuild your relationship with him. There's different kinds of things that are going on on a spiritual plane. And let me say this publicly now. What I'm not hearing is that everything's just been wonderful and easy and no problems. No. Rebuilding is hard work. It's hard work. It's hard work. But it's good work. I'm grateful for the testimonies I've already heard from different ones of you saying, you know what? I'm tired. There's things I'm scared of. This isn't easy. But this is good work. This is good work. Do you remember when we, we mentioned this a few weeks ago when, when Ezra showed up and, and spoke to the rebuilders and they said, let's do this good work. I love that phrase. Let's do this good work. Today, I think what we're seeing is just another layer, a deeper, more accurate look that to say we're going to do this good work is to count the cost. To recognize that part of what God is doing in our lives and in our hearts is a little bit what we did together in our, our worship with music today, right? We said before we can be filled up, we've got to empty our hands. We've got to empty our hands. And so with that in mind, I want to call us to a closing prayer. And I want to once again invite you to invite the Spirit. To invite the Holy Spirit to just kind of move in the corners of your heart and throughout your life and give him permission to maybe shine his flashlight on some of what you have not yet willingly laid down on the altar. It's there for all of us. No shame here, right? It's there for all of us. But you know that's what he does. You know that's what the Holy Spirit does. He's always got his flashlight. And he'll be there just to shine some lights on some things and say, let's move this. Have you seen the commercials on TV for 1-800-GOT-JUNK? Where they, they say, all you got to do is point and it's gone. We got to see it before we can get rid of it, right? We got to see it before we can get rid of it. Can we just with that attitude begin to pray? You can close your eyes if you like, but whatever posture it is that you, you want to adopt at this moment, Father, we just come before you right now. And on behalf of my brothers and sisters here, my friends with whom I'm gathered, with whom you have gathered us, we now say, Holy Spirit, would you come and bring your flashlights and would you move up and down and back and forth throughout our lives and just, just begin to shine your light. Just begin to shine your light. We have efforted today to open up our hands, to, to lay it down, to, to come and and to sacrifice because we recognize, we see, we get the story, God. It takes a heart that's willing to sacrifice in order to rebuild. And Lord, we confess right now that for all of us, I think we hear the word sacrifice and we think, oh no, oh no. They're going after my money again? <laughs> what am I going to have to give up this time? Holy Spirit, the more you shine your light, the more I discover that the things you're asking me to give up was the junk I was trying to get rid of in the first place. Would you do that work in our hearts today, God? Would you reveal? Would you unveil and unmask? 
And I just pray a little bit as we, as we perhaps even literally walk out of this place today, that hearts would be unburdened. I pray, Lord, that grief would be dealt with. I pray, Lord, that anxieties would begin to crack and crumble and to give way. I pray, Lord, that the perfect love that we know in our Savior Jesus would come and cast out fear. And I ask, Lord, that the building work, as we say, to build my life, Lord, I pray that that work would be accomplished in our hearts according to your will and your purposes. And God, we just submit all of these things to you. I pray that you would make our lives lives of living sacrifice for the glory of the kingdom that you are building. May it be so according to your purposes and plan. Lord Jesus, we ask it in your name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you for coming and worshiping together today. Go in strength and blessing.